The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. We went through the book of 1 Corinthians, and then we, uh, we also spent like four Sundays talking about Christmas and Christmas messages, including last week, uh, a Christmas carol. But just before the Christmas messages, we began a series uh, called Back to the Basics, and I just thought it would be good to do a few messages on just absolute fundamentals of biblical ministry and church ministry, really the foundation of when we started our church 10 years ago, what, was, what were the priorities going to be, and we just got those from the Bible. We let the Bible dictate what the church is all about, we let the Bible dictate what our ministries should be and what we should be doing. There's a lot of confusion among Christians today is about what is, what is a church, what should a church be doing, what kind of ministry should we have, how do we do this? Do we look to the latest fads? Do we look somewhere else? What kind of guide is the Bible, if the Bible is a guide at all? Well, it's really not that complicated. We believe the Bible is the model. It is clear. It's the example. It's unchanging. It's been so for 2,000 years. It is binding. It's God's truth. It's His church. He's made it clear how He wants His church to be run. He's made it clear what the church is. He has defined it in His holy word, the Scripture. So we look to the Bible to find out what a church is and how we are a part of it and how we actually do ministry in a church. And so we need to get back to basics to cut through the fog of the confusion many times that is set out there in sermons and books and on and on where some people are quite confused about what a church is and what a church should be doing. So hence the title, Back to Basics. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about one of the most fundamental things regarding a church and what a church should be doing, and that's just biblical preaching. Biblical preaching. We already did, uh, back to the basics, two other sermons. We did church discipline, absolutely foundational because Jesus said it should be. And we also talked about elders or the leadership of a church, which is rock bed, foundational. So those two we looked at, and now we'll look at a couple of more. Today, biblical preaching. I came up with the six points. There's much to say about preaching a preacher could talk forever about preaching. This could be a 10-week series, but we're not going to do that. This is not going to be exhaustive. This is going to be a survey. And I just try to think through what are the priorities, what are some of the main points that we need to know and be reminded of regarding the importance of preaching. And not just preaching, I call it biblical preaching because there is a kind of preaching that's not biblical. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of preaching that is done that isn't biblical. Some of that is intentional, actually, and some of it is out of ignorance for different reasons. Uh, so we believe here at Grace Bible Fellowship that one of the main priorities needs to be biblical preaching. And I trust as you look at some of these scriptures with me, you'll see that that is clear. That's what God has required of his church. So we'll just go through these together look at some key scriptures as we think it through, and ask the Holy Spirit to be our teacher this morning. So let's look at this vital truth about biblical preaching. I begin with a, a quote, actually, from a man of God and a faithful pastor and preacher of a generation ago, who said in his day, and this was in the 1900s, the 20th century, Early on, he said, the supreme work of the Christian minister is the work of preaching. This is a day in which 
one of our great perils is that of doing a thousand little things to the neglect of the one thing, which is preaching. That's a great statement. And he he didn't say that just because he himself was a preacher. He said that because he knew that was clear in the Bible. So this is so important when it comes to what is a church, what should a church be doing, what should a pastor be doing, uh, what do I look for in a biblical church. One of the first things you need to be looking for is does the church have biblical preaching? Absolutely foundational. Let's go ahead and look at these kind of six parameters or highlights of a God-honoring church that is committed to biblical preaching. Point number one, the mandate for preaching. The mandate, the command to preach, the expectation and obligation for a uh, a church to be preaching. Where does that come from? Who said so? Who said that a church should primarily be about preaching? Because not everybody agrees with that. Early on in the 1900s, Harry Emerson Fosdick, who became actually very influential as a leader, as a writer, as a speaker, his legacy even lives on today in many pastors, in many churches, in much church philosophy, in many Christian books that are being written, in many church growth books that are being produced in mass. Well, Harry Emerson Fosdick thought, well, we need to be relevant as a church to the culture and the culture with, this is in the like early 1900s, with the growing and developing technology, I think old style preaching is old hat and becoming archaic and irrelevant and people don't want to hear long sermons anymore. They need something else. They need something more relevant and more pertinent and more dynamic and more entertaining. I mean, this was his argument. So the church needs to jettison or get rid of the old style of doing things that we've been doing for 1,900 years, preaching, and supplant that or augment that with other forms of communication, Uh, whether different forms of entertainment, conversation, uh, more relevant means of gaining the attention of people or even the point of emphasis of how we might teach and communicate. Um, And so he wrote much on this, spoke much on this, and that caught hold, he planted seeds, it grew, and has dominated much of Christian thinking probably for the last 30 to 40 years. So basically what he was saying is uh, preaching shouldn't be such a priority anymore in the church. We need to get rid of it for a lot of different reasons. It's not relevant anymore. Uh, People can't pay attention. People's uh, ability to concentrate uh, is shorter. They have shorter attention spans today. This is the argument that's been developed. So we've got to get rid of these sermons and do other things and entertain and drama and music and all these other things to, like I said, supplant preaching. Many people grabbed onto that, latched onto that, and thought, yeah, that's a great idea. Many people have tried to grow huge, massive churches and followings through other means other than preaching. Because preaching, after all, archaic, boring, irrelevant, so said Fosdick. Uh, But... Point number one, the mandate for preaching for the church, it's God-ordained. That's the answer, God-ordained. It's God's command. It's what he said. It's what he laid down. It's what he expected. It's what he continues to expect. He hasn't changed his mandate for preaching. 
uh, that's what a church should be doing and should continue to do, preaching. So this uh, requirement that is foundational, the church ministry, biblical preaching, is not an option. It came from God Almighty Himself. He created the church. Jesus is the head of the church. And one of the main means of communicating and doing so many other things with respect to ministry from God's point of view is that we continue biblical preaching is foundational in the church. So the mandate for preaching, God ordained, it came from Himself, Almighty God. I put 2 Timothy 4 in there just as one example. Let's go ahead and look at it. Where Jesus comes, He does ministry, He prophesies in the book of Matthew just before His death. He mentions the church even before He goes to the cross and rises from the dead and sends the Holy Spirit on Pentecost to start the church. He said, I will build my church, so He predicted that. He knew that that was His plan, that's why He came. I will build my church. He knew what He was doing. He was training His apostles to be the foundation of for the church, to lay the foundation in His name, on His behalf, on His teaching, on His work. And so Jesus commissioned His apostles, and I will lead you, the apostles, into all the truth, and you will preach that, and then eventually you're going to write it down and inscripturate it in a Bible, the Scriptures that the church will have for all time until Christ comes again, and that's what we have today, the Bible, the Word of God, the words of Jesus in the New Testament that says everything we need to know about a church, and all throughout from Matthew to Revelation, there is the mandate for preaching. That's what the church is supposed to do. That is a priority ministry. And one example of an apostle that Jesus saved and called and appointed to be an apostle, not just an apostle, but also a prophet of his day and also a spokesman of Jesus Christ and also specifically a preacher. That's what Paul was supposed to do. So, Paul knew that, he fulfilled that, and Paul's training other men that God has called to be preachers. Timothy was one of them, a protege of Paul, and Paul's reminding Timothy of the priorities of his ministry. He's in a difficult place there in Ephesus and with critics, and it's hard, and he's having to endure and persevere and losing faith, and Paul exhorts young Timothy to stay focused and remember what the priority is that God has called you to do, whether people accept it or not. And that's 2 Timothy chapter 4, follow along as I read verse 1 and following. I solemnly charge you, Timothy, you pastor, you church planter, you evangelist, you church leader. I, I charge you, I command you in the presence of God. This is not an option. This is an obligation from heaven. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, the judge of the world, of every soul and by His appearing, and by His kingdom. Timothy, you're going to be accountable to Jesus Christ when He returns for your work that you have done as a representative of Him in the church. So get it right. Priority number one, verse two, preach the Word. There it is. That's the divine mandate, God-ordained, never to change, for the church and the man of God. That's what a pastor should be known first and foremost for. Not, well, is he a savvy businessman? Uh, is he an eloquent speaker and communicator? Does he look good? Is he articulate? All those things. Communication is important, but that's not the main thing. Can he raise money and raise funds? Is he persuasive? Do people follow him? On and on it goes. Priority number one, yes, is he a holy man of God, an obedient man of God? And in terms of his duties, does he preach the word? Because that's priority number one, and that's what Paul told Timothy. Preach the word. Preach the word. What is the word? Well, first of all, preach. That's the verb. Uh, it's an imperative. It is a command. 
He's bound to do it. He's accountable for doing it. And then what is it that he preaches? What he speaks? Preach, by the way, it's a verbal word. It's verbal communication. It's always out of the mouth. It's amazing in the New Testament, the diversity of words used to describe the preacher and his mandate and his duty. 33 different Greek verbs are used to describe the task of preaching. And it is always verbal. It's not put on a drama that will ooh and ah people or show a movie or listen to a record. It is verbal preaching first and foremost. That is the mandate. And you preach the word, not your own opinion, not the tradition of man, not the creeds, not the councils. It is the word. What is the word? The word is the word of God, as it's called hundreds of times in the Old Testament. It's what God has revealed and inscripturated and preserved in the Bible. So we preach the Bible. That's what that word means. Preach the word. Preach scripture. Preach the Bible. Be ready in season and out of season. Always be ready. Uh, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Those are three different ways to preach. It involves calling people to uh, holiness. It's exposing sin. It's exhorting them to be obedient. One of these words also has to do with comfort and encouragement, which is positive. So it's a diversity. These are just beautiful complementary terms of how we should communicate and preach the Word of God as pastors. Do it with great patience. We're, we're all in the learning process together. No one has arrived, hence the patience. And we're all sinners. So all the need, all the more need for patience with great patience and instruction. So there it is. That is the mandate. Um, God ordained. I wanted to, I put in, as a reference there, Matthew 24, 14, just so the context. Matthew 24, just before Jesus leaves gets crucified, rises again from the dead. He's talking to his apostles, and they said, Jesus, tell us about the end of the age and when, you, when it all uh, comes to a consummation. Can you describe what's going to happen at the end of the age, and is it now that you're going to restore your kingdom? And so for the entire Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus talks about the end of the age. And one of the things that he says uh, that about the end of the age in Matthew 24, 14, he says, until the end of the age... This gospel, gospel means good news about Jesus Christ, the good news. This gospel that I'm trusting to you, the good news of Jesus Christ, of the kingdom, shall be preached in the whole world to all the nations until the end. There, that's the mandate given by Jesus himself, that from the time the church began until Christ returns, Priority number one is the preaching of the Word of God and specifically the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we are to never deviate from that, and it is never to be undermined by any other alternative as a priority of communicating the truth of God in the gospel. This gospel shall continue till the end. So we will continue to be faithful to God's mandate, and that is the preaching of the gospel and the Word of God as a biblical church, despite what maybe popular trends might say that we should be doing. Oh, McManus, you can't preach a 45, 50-minute sermon every week. Well, I preach 59-minute sermons, by the way. But anyway, uh, I did last week. Because people don't have, this is what I've been told, this is what I read in the books, especially how to start a church and church plant, a lot of these church growth books. Uh, you should preach like a 15-minute to 19-minute sermon because people can't, you can't keep people's attention that long. Their uh, attention span is shorter today than in times past. And I'm thinking, no, it's not. 
I mean, there are plenty of people today who can play video games for four hours straight without taking a break, without going potty, eating food, breathing. And some of these very complex video games, you have to concentrate like in nothing else. How do I know this? Because I was addicted to video games in high school as a teenager. And I am a recovered addict of video games. So it is possible. So I just don't buy that. People do have an attention span. The question is, what is in their heart's desire? What do they want to be focused on? What do they want to give attention to? And we can give attention to the Word of God still to this day. That mandate will never change. It's from God Himself. So a biblical church will have biblical preaching. The mandate of preaching, God-ordained. Point number two. Well, when we preach, what do we preach? Uh, the manual for preaching, very simple. I already said it. We preach the Bible. Sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? Oh, that's so simple. That's not profound. Well, actually, it is. We preach the Bible. We preach Scripture. Actually, that's the only thing we do preach. There are many preachers who preach other things. They preach human opinion. They preach uh, ideas, philosophy, stories. Sometimes they think they're preaching the Bible and they're not. They just use the Bible as a launching pad. They read a verse, and then they're off into talking about something else that has absolutely nothing to do with what the text says. see that all the time. Can't deviate from the text. What do we preach? We preach the text of the Bible, God's Word. It's all over Scripture. Why do we preach the Bible? Well, because God said to, and also because it is the Word of God. The Word of man is not the Word of God. Human opinion is not the Word of God. Tradition is not the Word of God. Right here. This is the Word of God, Scripture. God has preserved it for us through His Holy Spirit and the vessels that He chose to preserve it intact. So in the Bible, in the Scripture, we have the Word of God. It is called truth. That's why we should preach it. We preach truth. Not opinions. The Bible is actually contains God's thoughts. Do you want to know what God thinks about an issue? You go here to the Bible. That's actually the only place to go to, to determine what God thinks about something. I wonder what God thinks about this. There's only one place to find out for us. It's in the Bible. These are God's written thoughts. This is what He thinks. That's why we preach the Bible, figure out what God thinks about anything. Uh, we preach the Bible because it is the living Word of God. It's not just a human book. It is the living Word of God, supernatural, divine. It's life-changing. As a matter of fact, the truth of the Bible is the only thing that can change the human heart. That's what Jeremiah said. See a leopard with his spots? Who can change a leopard with his spots? Nobody. Nothing. Save God and the power of His Word and His Holy Spirit alone. So the Word of God is living, it is powerful, it is effective. Scripture says it never returns void. It always accomplishes God's intended purpose. It changes people. It provides food for the soul. It's binding. It's authoritative. It is timeless. It is constant. It is unchanging. It is reliable. And it is without error. Boy, that's a lot of good reasons to trust the Bible and preach the Bible, right? Amen. Well, just a, maybe one passage um, to show that this was this is what Jesus did. He preached the scriptures, and he didn't just preach selectively. He preached the whole Bible. And there's several examples, but none better than Luke 24. Just hit a couple of highlights. So Jesus died on the cross, rose again from the dead, and he was out on the streets walking around. He came across two disciples who were followers of Jesus. He starts talking to them. They don't realize they're talking to the resurrected Lord Jesus because they are blinded and they don't recognize Jesus. And Jesus basically says, so who are you looking for? And they said, man, who are you? 
were looking for Jesus. Don't you, haven't you heard what happened? We thought he was the Messiah. He was a great prophet, they called him. He was a mighty prophet, this Jesus. And then he was arrested, and he got crucified and died. And then the ladies went to try to find him this morning. They couldn't find him, but they said they saw angels. And we haven't seen Jesus since. And so they were quite concerned, these two disciples. And they said, and we thought he was going to be the Messiah. And so they were somewhat disheartened and disappointed. And at that point, Jesus intersects, and he said to these two disciples in verse 25 of Luke 24, Oh, foolish, you fools. And it was a wake-up call. You fools, oh foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. See, the stumbling block for these two disciples was this idea that the Messiah, who was going to be the conqueror and reigning king, also had to die. That, but that was in the Old Testament, and they just kind of skipped over that, didn't see it, didn't understand it. Their understanding was darkened to that idea, and so he's saying, wait a minute, you're disciples, you're Jews, you know the Old Testament, you know the Mosaic Law. Uh, you know, the prophets, it's in there. The Messiah had to die. Don't you remember that? Don't you believe the whole Bible in all that the prophets have spoken? Verse 26, Jesus goes on, Was it not necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer these things and to enter into His glory? This was part of God's plan all along. Shouldn't be a surprise. Verse 27, and then what Jesus does is amazing. Verse 27, then beginning with Moses, you know what that means? Beginning with the Torah, the Mosaic Law, the five books of Moses, beginning with means beginning with Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning. So beginning with Moses and with all the prophets. You know what that is? That means the entire Old Testament because that's how the Jews of Jesus' day understood the Bible. It was the, Mosa- the Law and the Prophets. That's how they divided up all 39 of our books. This was a very long Bible study. And Jesus is going through through the entire Old Testament, preaching it, teaching it, enlightening them, and showing where He is in the Old Testament, fulfilling God's plan in the very day that He came and died and rose again. Verse 27, and He explained to them. See, it was verbal communication. Explaining is a form of preaching. He preached the Scriptures. He explained the Scriptures. Explained to them the things concerning Himself. Notice, in all of the Scriptures. So that's what we Preach. The manual for preaching is the Bible and only the Bible. There are no uh, competitors or legitimate alternatives when we preach. So to be discerning, looking for a, a biblical church and a biblical message, uh, zone in and, and ask, is this man preaching the truth of Scripture? Is he explaining Scripture or something else? Cut through the chase. So the mandate for preaching, it's God-ordained. The manual for preaching... Out of the Bible. Number three, the message for preaching. What is the message that we preach? Well, uh, we preach the text before us. We preach it in context, and we're going to see that a little more when we define expositional preaching. And we preach the chapter before us, but collectively and altogether, systematically, on a regular basis, what should the preacher be preaching is what I'm getting to here. Because there is one theme that weaves its way all throughout Scripture from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation 22. There's one storyline, there's one main overriding point that God wants to emphasize that He's trying to reveal to humanity with many sub-points complementing it, and that's the message, the overall message of Christianity, the distinctive message of Christianity that makes it different from every other philosophy on planet Earth, every other religion, every other ideology. 
There's a distinction to the Christian truth found in Scripture, and that's number three. The message for preaching is the redemption in Christ, redemption in Christ, salvation in Jesus Christ and Him alone. That really is the distinctive message of the Bible and of Christianity. There is salvation in Jesus. There is salvation in Jesus only. There is no other way to the Father except Jesus Christ, the God-man, through who He is and what He did, His death on the cross, His resurrection, His ascension into heaven. On behalf of sinful humanity, all for God's glory, one message, and it's redemption in Christ. John 5.39 that I put down there, Jesus does a miracle. He does a miracle on the Sabbath, which is a Saturday. There, nowhere in the Old Testament does it say that a prophet of God cannot do a miracle on Saturday. There were laws in the Old Testament that said you couldn't work on the Sabbath, which we See you Saturday. And if you violated that as a Jew, you, that was warrant for the death penalty. But the Old Testament law said you, you couldn't heal somebody or do something kind. And so it's a feast day. There are many Jews near Jerusalem. The place is packed. Uh, the religious leaders are out and about watching, listening. They've heard about this Jesus. They don't like him. They're suspicious of him. Uh, they're watching him like a hawk, looking to trip him up, cause him to stumble, catch him in sin, whatever they could do. And so they're out. And Jesus does this miracle, he does it publicly, and he heals a man on the Sabbath. The Jews ask, hey, who healed you on the Sabbath? They find out it's Jesus, and so from that point on, they began to try to kill Jesus. From that day on, they began to persecute Jesus, so says John chapter 5. Then they get to a public disputation, or argument, and all of the rest of chapter 5 is Jesus rebuking the prominent religious leaders in Jerusalem for all to see and hear. They were the supposed authorities of the Old Testament and biblical truth. And Jesus takes them to task because they were legalists. They distorted the Word of God. They didn't really love God, and they were deceiving the people. They needed a resounding rebuke from Jesus himself. And that's what he gave them in John chapter 5, verse 39. He says, you know what? You scribes, you Sadducees, you Pharisees, you think you are experts of the Old Testament because that's what they claim to be. They had much of the Old Testament even memorized. They taught the people, supposedly, the Word of God in the Old Testament. They were in charge of the synagogues, the places of religious education. And so this is Jesus who he's talking to and rebuking. You, you know the Scriptures. You search the Scriptures. You search the Scriptures because in the Scriptures you think you have eternal life. And in vanities, you search all the Old Testament Scriptures. You neglect to find me, the, the predominant subject of the Old Testament Scriptures, the coming Messiah, the suffering servant, the King of the ages, it is me. That's what he said, John 5, 39. So Jesus made it clear. When you read the Bible, when you study the Bible, it should be crystal clear that it is Christocentric. It is about Jesus Christ. If you're studying the Bible, preaching the Bible, reading the Bible, writing books about the Bible, and you're not talking about extolling, making Jesus Christ preeminent, you do it in vain. Simply a human exercise, ultimately motivated by pride. If Christ is not central, if He is not the circumference and the center of all that we do regarding biblical teaching, it is vain, it is nothing. And that's what Jesus said. So all biblical study inevitably should take us back to the glories of Jesus Christ, His person and His work. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. 
I love the story in Acts chapter 8 where it says an angel talked to Philip the evangelist and said, hey, Philip, I got some work for you to do. So the angel literally transported Philip, boop, took him over to this caravan and a chariot in particular where there was a, a, a prestigious man who worked for the queen and was in charge of her finances. And Philip noticed that he's reading Old Testament scripture. And so Philip asked, say, what, what are you reading there? He said, well, I'm reading about this uh, suffering servant, this lamb that's going to be slain. And then Philip said, well, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I understand the Bible unless somebody explains it to me? See, that's one of the, the word he used, explain, that's one of the synonyms for preaching. One of the things we should be doing when we preach the scriptures is explaining the meaning of the passage so that people can understand it. And so uh, Philip jumps up there in the chariot and he, start, he looks at it, it's Isaiah 53. And it's a prophecy about Jesus suffering and dying for sinners called the Lamb of God. An amazing chapter in the Bible. And then Philip goes through it and he explains it all to the Ethiopian. This is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And so he gives the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian believes, as a matter of fact, the phrase it's a beautiful phrase. It says in Acts 8 that Philip preached Jesus to him. Mean you can find Jesus in the Old Testament? I, I didn't know the name Jesus appears in the Old Testament. It doesn't. Not Jesus, but Jesus by many other names. As Messiah, as anointed one, as the king, as the suffering servant, as the angel of Yahweh, as Yahweh himself, as the son, and on and on. So Jesus is definitely there in the Old Testament. He's even called God in the Old Testament. So Jesus is all throughout the Old Testament. Philip explains that to the evangelist. He preached Jesus to him. The eunuch believes, and he gets baptized. It is absolutely awesome. My point is, is that what did Philip preach? He preached the redemption of Jesus Christ. And that's what changed his soul. So biblical preaching is God-ordained. We preach the Bible. We preach the theme of the redemption of Christ. Yeah, so if you're doing Bible study, Jesus is all over the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. Actually, Jesus can be found in every book of the Old Testament either explicitly through a prophecy, through a type, he's there. Number four, the method of preaching. Well, how do we do this? This is probably one of the biggest um, controversial discussions today among Christians and churches and so-called evangelicals is, well, yeah, we agree we should be preaching the Bible and we should be teaching the Bible. and Yeah, it's, yeah, that's true. It's about Jesus and salvation and redemption, but uh, here's where we get caught up in probably have more squabbles than on any of these issues about the kind of preaching we should be doing. What kind of preaching should we be doing? And so there are many options, especially recently in the last 20 years, of options we should be doing. It's always changing. Like 10 years, the big, 10 years ago, the big thing was, well, we need, to, we, need to be, uh, and we need to present a conversation. We need a conversation, not a disputation, not a proclamation. We need a conversation, and that's how, and we need to be conversational, not in our preaching. We don't preach. Uh, we get up on the stage, and we wear blue jeans and a t-shirt preferably, and maybe some holes in their jeans and tennis shoes, because that's relevant and makes people feel comfortable and not threatened, and preferably we don't hold a Bible. Maybe we have an iPad or something or a few verses on the wall. And we sit in a chair, and not a pulpit. That's kind of intimate. It separates you from the people. I don't want to be separated from you, so I'll move over here. And you sit on a stool. I mean, this is all very specifically, systematically laid out in books. So when you see it in a church, it's not just by chance people are doing this. This is a philosophy. 
This is a methodology to accomplish a very specific purpose because of so-called hurdles that inhibit the communication of biblical truth in our day to be relevant. And so we sit on the stool or whatever, and we don't pre and we don't lecture, we don't we don't point our finger at people, and we have a conversation, and we allow people to get this to join in the conversation and also to just listen in in the conversation, and then maybe they'll get interested, and maybe we'll intersect with something that's relevant in their life or meets a felt need, and that's, and literally this is how some churches run their ministry. And this is the way to do it. And this is a, a recent thing. It's a novel thing. It's within the last 20 years and has become crystallized in the last 10 years. And you can see it's rampant and everywhere. Conversation. That's the word, conversation. Very specific and deliberate. Technical phrase, actually. Conversation. That's a style of teaching. Or they don't like the word preaching, by the way. Because preaching implies a certain form of communication, Right? Preaching is one way. Preaching is me telling you what to do and what to think. It's not interactive. It's not two-way. It's not mutual. That's one of the reasons it's, um, they don't like that term. So that's probably one of the more popular ones in a lot of hip evangelical churches. And there are many Christians in those churches and people who love Jesus and the Bible. I'm just telling you about the methodology that's being Implement it. Anyway, and the, the methods keep changing. That's the thing. Can't ever settle on it. There's going to be a new book in another five years with a new kind of way to communicate and preach. I guarantee it. We don't even know what the word is yet or the style that goes with it. Ten years from now, looking back, we'll know what it is. These new novel approaches to better communicate, we're told. Um, so there's that kind of preaching. Then there's um, all kinds of alternatives of biblical preaching from telling stories. That's an old one. Telling stories, relevant stories, not really preaching the Bible, just telling heart-rending stories. And if, if you've got a powerful communicator who is articulate and is able to gain the attention of people and hold their attention, and he's a great storyteller, and there's a lot of communicators out there like that, and all they have to do is just tell a story. It doesn't even have to be out of the Bible. And it can woo them and move them and uh, get their emotions going and even act, uh, cause people to prompt them to, to act in certain ways. But that's not biblical preaching because they're not preaching the text of Scripture. So that, that's a common one because a lot of times, you know, people might, Christians, yeah, he's a good speaker. I like him. Yeah, he's a good speaker. Yeah, he's powerful. Yeah, he's entertaining. He's moving. He's whatever, which is fine, but you got to, well, why do you like him? Is it because he's faithful to the truth of the Word of God and helps you understand Scripture? That's a good thing. If it's for any other reason, that's a bad thing. Um. Anyway, so I'm just going to cut to the chase. I think that uh, biblical preaching clearly is expositional. So the method of preaching, it needs to be expositional. We would call this expository preaching. Uh, many of you have heard that word. Some people have never heard that word. Maybe you're here today, you've never heard that. What is expository preaching? There are people who come visit our church, and I've talked with them, and they'll say, yeah, you preach different. I don't know there's something about it. It's not like uh, you're not telling stories, or it's not thematic, or it's not, it's, I've, I've never heard this before. What is it? Well, I think maybe you're thinking about expository preaching. Then I explain what is, oh yeah, I've, no, I've actually, I'm not familiar with that. Some people don't like expository preaching. But I think it's the biblical model um, and not just a New Testament thing. I do want to read out of Nehemiah in your Old Testament. Ezra, Nehemiah. 
Nehemiah chapter 8. There was a revival uh, in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, the revival was the Spirit of God working on the hearts of the people. Get this, with the Word of God in Scripture in the Old Testament being revealed, opening the minds and the understanding of the people. That's how God always does revival. He does it through the truth of His Word, His divine revelation, in tandem with His powerful Holy Spirit that opens the minds of people to understand God's Word. And then the days of Nehemiah, that was no different. So they had a ministry of teaching the Word of God. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people, all the Jews, gathered as one man, big crowd, corporate worship service, here it is, at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe, the holy man, to bring the book of the law, that, to bring the scripture, bring the word of God, preacher man. And Ezra the priest brought the law, the word of God, before the, get this, the men, the women, and all who could listen with understanding, which means the babies weren't there, where were they? They were in the nursery. That phrase is repeated three times in this chapter. All those who could listen with understanding. And so Ezra reads from uh, the Word of God, the law, in front of the water gate. Get this. He preached from early morning until midday. That is one long sermon. That's a three-plus-hour sermon. Wow. In the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people get this, they were attentive to the book of the law. They listened to the Word of God attentively. They knew God's truth. And get this, verse 4, Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium. Voila! Why do we use a wooden podium? Because it holds my Bible up where I can see it and I can move my hands freely. Very practical. Stood at a wooden podium which they had made for that purpose. See, there it is. It's a preaching pulpit. Ezra opened the book inside of all the people for he was standing, get this, above all the people. Not that he was domineering, but his voice could carry better. Another practical reason. Why are you up front, Pastor Cliff? So people can hear me better. And it's not hear me, it's hear the Word of God better. For he was standing above all the people, and when the people... Oh, and when he opened Scripture, all the people stood up. Isn't that awesome? No, just go ahead and stay seated. They were just showing reverence for the Word of God, which was cultural. And then Ezra blessed the Lord, Yahweh, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen. You know, every once in a while you can say Amen. Thank you. At the truth of the Word of God. Amen and Amen. While lifting up their hands. Well, they were charismatic back then. Then they bowed low and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This is awesome. What in the world? Verse 8, and here's the method of preaching and teaching and communication that Ezra did for at least in his three-hour sermon. They, he read from the book, so you read the Scripture from the law of God, translating it, in, literally interpreting it, explaining what it means to the people so that the end goal, they might understand and then do what? What they do in the rest of this chapter, implement it, they do it. We read the Word of God, we explain the Word of God, and we do the Word of God. That's expository preaching. And it's right there in Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Jesus replicated that. John the Baptist replicated that. That's what he did. That's what Jesus did. That's what the apostles did. That's what they were commissioned to do. And that's what every pastor of a church should be doing today until Jesus returns. And just before Jesus returns, God sends two witnesses in the book of Revelation. They will be prophets or preachers of the Word of God as well, doing the same thing that Nehemiah did 500 years B.C. 
God's methods on this matter don't change. It's God-ordained. Expositional preaching. By the way, expositional, expository preaching. Exposing. Expository comes from the word to expose, to open up, to unfold, to make clear. What's that? What do we expose? We expose the meaning in the text. That is key. We expose the meaning in the text, the intention of the original human author as he was moved by the Holy Spirit when he wrote down what he wrote. So when I'm studying Genesis, I want to know what Moses meant in Exodus 20. What did Moses mean, and how did his original audience clearly understand him in 1400 B.C.? For example, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, when he said, in, seven, in six days the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested. What did Moses mean? I think Moses meant that he believed that God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. And they were real days. And I believe his original audience thought the same thing. That's what we do with expository preaching. We expose the meaning based on the understanding of the original author as God intended it, and the way we find that original meaning is in the immediate context of that passage. So expository preaching gives attention to the immediate context, the context of the passage, the context of the chapter, the context of the book, the context of the New Testament, the context of the entire Bible, contextual preaching. So that the meaning is inherent in the written Scripture. The meaning of a passage that we preach is not in me, it's not in my mind, it's not in the world, it's not in culture. That isn't where we find the meaning. What does this mean to me? That, that's an illegitimate question. I don't care what it means to me. That is not the issue. What did this mean to the Apostle Paul when he wrote it? Or when God originally gave it? That's expository preaching. That's the only thing that God wants us to do, to find the original meaning. That's why contextualization is a very dangerous concept in word, that, tech, that technical term, contextualization, that first began to be used in the 1970s by the National or the World, Church of, the World Council of Churches, which is a totally apostate organization. And they developed this idea of contextualization. What does that mean? Well, we get the meaning of the passage from what's going on in the world, and we foist that back into the Bible. So the meaning of the Bible is continually changing. Year after year, from culture to culture. Well, no, we don't do that. Contextualization is very different than context. Contextualization is very different than being relevant to our culture. So just beware of that. So how do we preach? We preach expositorily. And by the way, another common definition that's misunderstood, expository preaching, uh, I was reading a book this week on preaching. An evangelical pastor defined expository preaching this way. Expository preaching is going verse by verse through the Bible. That, that was his definition. I'm thinking, no, that is not expository preaching. You can go verse by verse and miss the whole point of the passage. You can you read a verse, and then you talk about something that has nothing to do with the verse. You go to the next verse, talk about something else that's not in the passage. see it all the time. That's not expository preaching. Expository preaching does lend itself to going verse by verse because you're trying to find the, the meaning in the context as God gave it. So that's just an important point of clarification. So we preach the Bible expositorily. And by the way, you can preach um, a thematic sermon expositorily like I'm doing right now. I'm not going verse by verse through a book like we do most of the time, but I am preaching expositorily. I'm trying to teach verses individually in their context, exposing the true meaning as God gave it. And then I'm synthesizing it Altogether, So we preach expositionally. Number five. Oh, another footnote. Some people think they define expository preaching as boring. That's their only definition. 
no, expository preaching, is, it can actually be very exciting, very enlightening, very fulfilling, very satisfying. Don't blame it on expository preaching. Blame it on the boring preacher. Number five, the uh, biblical preaching, the messenger of preaching, who should be preaching on a regular basis and leadership in the church. Qualified and trained men of God. Qualified and trained men of God. We've gone through qualifications of an elder a few times. We did it recently, I think at the end of November. 1 Timothy 3.2 lays out the qualifications of an elder. An elder is a pastor, is an overseer, is a shepherd, is a bishop, is an episcopal. Those are all synonymous terms. And one of the qualifications of an elder or a pastor in the church is that he needs to be apt to teach, able to teach, gifted to teach, called by God to teach, appointed by God to be a teacher and a preacher. That's what Paul said about himself. 1 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, Paul said, he has been appointed, that's the word, a very specific word, hand-selected by Almighty God to be a preacher. He used that word twice. God called me, appointed me, designated me, gifted me, gave me supernatural gifting and equipment to be a preacher. A preacher, a pre- what is a preacher? A preacher is a proclaimer. That was another thing about uh, the word for preaching. I said it, there are 33 different verbs in the New Testament to describe biblical preaching or in the Bible, and they all have to do with verbal proclamation and preaching. The most common word in the New Testament is keruso, which means to proclaim or preach. It is one way. It is a declaration. It's a divine rec- de- declaration. It's a divine declaration of a fixed message from Almighty God. It is a decree issued from heaven on high. That is preaching. Proclamation, to announce, to proclaim, hear ye, hear ye, by order of the king. So inherent is it is an authoritative binding universal message that we are accountable to. Preach, proclaim, announce, and with it all those other nuances of explaining and highlighting and guiding, these are other words used to complement verbal proclamation, to speak forth. And so an elder, pastor, shepherd needs to be gifted and trained in this task or ministry focus of preaching and proclaiming God's Word. So an elder needs to be apt to teach, able to teach, the ability to teach. If someone does not have the gift of teaching, then they aren't qualified to be an elder slash pastor. They have to be gifted. Yeah, teaching, that's another synonym of preaching. Your preaching needs to be teaching, exposing the meaning of the Word of God. So uh, the preacher needs to be qualified. This is so important in our day, needs to be reminded that there are divine, supernatural qualifications for a pastor and an elder. Today, more than ever, we need to hear this and know what the qualifications are. And there's accountability there. There's a divine standard. There's a calling and appointment from Almighty God to fulfill that position. And young men or any man that goes into ministry needs to be warned of that clearly. Were you called by God, appointed by God to do this task? And then warned from James chapter 1. If you're going to be a teacher of the Bible, a preacher of the Bible, there's a higher standard for you, and that should scare them because it scares me. There's a higher level of judgment and accountability if you're a teacher of God's Word. The reason I said we need to hear this more than ever in this day and age is because of just where we are in our culture and the ability to just, we, we have startups for everything. 
startup business, startup that, startup this, startup entrepreneur. There's nothing wrong with startup. When people just start willy-nilly starting up, well, I started a startup church. Oh, okay, how'd that happen? Well, we just decided to do it. Didn't like my church, didn't like the leadership, didn't like submitting to other people's authority. Startup church. Well, no, this isn't a business. Startup church. I'm the startup pastor. Really? And what are your qualifications? What qualifications? That's startup. I mean, there's qualifications? Yeah. So that happens a lot in our day and age. Nothing wrong with a church plant, but you got to do it the biblical way, biblical means, biblical qualifications, uh, hopefully with other churches in conjunction helping you, holding you accountable, guiding you along the way so you are connected with other local churches, the body of Christ, which covers this whole world. You're not an island. You're not a cul-de-sac. You're not the corner of the truth, the body of Christ, which is universal. So there's qualifications. Also, there needs to be training. Timothy got trained by Paul. Jesus trained his disciples for three and a half years. Took them to seminary to get an MDiv degree. They made a lot of mistakes. There's got to be training. There's got to be discipleship, mentoring. There's got to be, and you do have to allow for mistakes. It's part of growth. So training, qualifications. Um, not only do you be, need to be qualified to become a preacher, once somebody becomes a preacher, elder, shepherd, they need to remain qualified. It's not a given. It's not a shoe-in. They're going to remain qualified. You become disqualified is very possible. Paul feared that to no end. I fear that I might become disqualified from the ministry, he said in Corinthians. Because he knew, first and foremost, he was sinful. He had sin living in him that he loathed and despised. And it was a conscious reality to him. That was his greatest threat, his greatest nemesis, his greatest enemy. He also knew there was a devil that was real, that never slept, and would never had slumber and would always be pursuing Paul, tempting him to sin, tempting him to fall and become disqualified. And every person who's a pastor and elder needs to be conscious of that and surround yourself with accountability and daily pleading with God and His mercy that you might be preserved because none of us deserves to be a pastor. Nobody deserves that role. So let's go on to number six. Um, so preaching is God-ordained. It's from the Bible. It's about the redemption of Christ. It's expositional by qualified and trained men. I, I didn't even mention that the, one of the qualifications of a pastor needs to be a man. Now, can women teach the Bible? Yes. Does God want women to be pastors? No. That's clear. First Timothy 2, it's clear. I do not want, the Spirit of God says through Paul, I don't want women you exercising teaching authority over men in the church. Why, Paul? Was it a cultural reason, as some people will tell us? Or you hated women, as some people will? No. For, and he goes back to the creation story, which transcends all time, all cultures. Because God made Adam first, then he made Eve. It was Eve who was tempted, not Adam. And, and then in 1 Corinthians 11, the woman was made for the man, not man for the woman. So these are reasons given by God from the very beginning, rooted in creation, ontological reasons, if you will, that transcend all of time, all cultures, all human opinion. Not every man is qualified to be the preacher, but a preacher must be a man who is qualified. It's not because God likes men more than he likes women. Don't believe the adage that's spoken today ad infinitum, ad nauseum. 
A woman can do everything a man can do. No, she can't. Newsflash, no, a woman cannot do anything a man can do. A woman can't be a daddy, and vice versa is true. A man can't do everything a woman can do. A man can't be a mommy. That's by God's design. It's a beautiful thing. It's a perfect complement. And women are just as vital in the local church of God as men are. We've got to keep our eyes focused on the right priority. Jesus Christ, his preeminence. It's the only thing that matters. Okay, number six. The motive for preaching God's, uh, God's word and biblically is for God's glory and man's good. This is, this is the best uh, for the people of God. If we continue to faithfully preach, we make preaching a hallmark of the church ministry. By the way, people ask, you know, what's the most important ministry in the church? And I don't want to be selfish and say, well, preaching, you know, so I can keep my job. Um, but I would say preaching even if I wasn't a pastor because it's so clear in Scripture. That's what the church, according to Paul and Timothy, he said the church is the guardian, the pillar of the truth of God's Word. And everything emanates from the teaching of Scripture. Preaching, biblical preaching, defines every ministry in the church. Well, isn't prayer just as important as preaching? Uh, yes, but what defines prayer how we pray, what we pray, when we pray. How do we know how to pray? That is divine, that's defined through the preaching of Scripture. So the preaching ministry defines every other area of ministry. Preaching even defines the ministry of preaching. Some would say it's uh, the tip of the spear with respect to ministry, in terms of chronology, the priority and foundation and what everything else flows from that. The preaching ministry is absolutely important in the priority. And the motive for preaching, it's for God's glory and for uh, the people's good. Uh, as we were planning the church, the elders to be, we read Mark Dever's book on the deliberate church, great book. And, and the one passage that jumped out of that book that I still remember from 10 years ago was when uh, the pastor author there, Dever, said, and he's talking about church plants, when you plant a church, new pastor, dude, Keep in mind, do one thing, make it a priority. Preach the Word of God and preach it faithfully. It's like, amen, I can do that. And he said, but be warned, pastor dude. If you preach the Word of God fearlessly, consistently, and faithfully, one of two things will happen. It will attract people who love truth, and it will repel others who don't like it. So get ready for some criticism if you're a faithful pastor. It's like, wow. It does. If you, treat, if you preach the Word of God as it is given, undiluted, clearly so that people can understand it, there will always be a reaction from people when they hear God's truth. They will either love it and hunger for more or have a disdain for it and take out their animus in different ways towards that word of truth they don't like. They may just run away. They may say something while they're running away. Whatever. And then on the, I remember the first service we ever had here at GBF, almost 10 years ago, August 30th, whatever it was, 2006, we asked uh, a pastor from Morgan Hill who was guiding us through the process of planning the church, giving wise counsel, hosting meetings, praying for us and his church and his elders. And so I asked him to come and say the opening prayer at our very first service. Mike Birchfield, Pastor Mike, still faithfully down there in uh, Morgan Hill. And so he said an amazing prayer. First thing, he, he prayed the opening prayer of the church plant, and I'll never forget it. Then we're singing a song, and he walks down uh, the stairs, and I'm standing right there, and he goes up to me, and he grabs me, and he's whispering in my ear for about 60 seconds. 
And he just kept saying, uh, Cliff, just focus on one thing. Preach the Word of God. Preach it faithfully. Preach it courageously. Don't worry about the critics. Stay focused. Uh, stay humble. Stay teachable. You're accountable to God. Be faithful. You will please God. Don't ever stop preaching the Word. That's all he said. Then he walked away. So every once in a while, every year or so, I get to call Mike and Mike, I'm still trying. Still trying to be faithful to what you said. I haven't forgotten. Keep preaching for God's glory, for our good. And then number six, uh, here are the benefits of the preached word of God as we hear it preached in a biblical manner. Uh, God's word, I already said this, it's effective. It never returns void. It imparts faith. We need faith. And hearing the word of God imparts and creates faith. It's food for our soul and helps us grow spiritually when we hear the word of God preached. Probably one of the most important things is it affects our thinking, guides our thinking. Sometimes it changes our thinking for the better. It helps us become discerning people. Proactively listening to a biblical sermon preached, get this, is an act of obedience that pleases God. Listening to a biblical sermon preached proactively, openly, deliberately is an act of worship to Almighty God. So the worship part of the service isn't just when we play and sing songs, play music and sing songs. Everything we do is supposed to be an act of worship, according to Romans 12, listening to a biblical sermon, just trying to be discerning, be a Berean, take it in, welcome and receive the word in the words of James, delight your soul in the truth of the word of God, quietly in your own heart, in your own mind, in your own conscience, is a, an act of worship to Almighty God. That is awesome. And with that, uh, let's pray to the Father deliberately and thank Him for the truth of His Word. Father, we do thank You for uh, this day, the opportunity to gather with the saints. Thank You for the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. God, thank You for Your Holy Spirit who preserved Scripture, had it written down. Thank You for the saints through the ages who practically helped by writing it down, some giving their life to perpetuate Your truth. We're indebted to them. Thank you for using the Word of God to save our soul. We've been born again through the living Word of God. You've said in your Word. Thank you for feeding our soul through Scripture. It's the milk we need and the meat we need for spiritual growth. Continue to help our hearts be tender and receptive towards your truth. And every time we open the Word, God, may we take it seriously and seek the Holy Spirit to be our true teacher, enlightening our understanding and not just understand it, but actually do it and be a doer of the Word, as James called us to do. All for your glory. We know it's for our good. We thank you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.